0: Let's pray. Father, we just want to pause and give you these moments. I ask that you would help speak through me the things that you want to say to hearts that want to hear from you, want to encounter you. I pray this be more than just a teaching, but it will be an opportunity where your word meets a spirit and a heart and in something beyond what we could humanly do happens. I just give this time to you. We give this time to you. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, one weekend in the spring, once a year, I get together with some college buddies, five of us. We get together and we usually go out to where my friend is in San Francisco and then go to a place for we just have this wonderful weekend together. I didn't say this in the first service. I made the mistake of bringing my wife for one day of that one time while she was flying somewhere else, and she said, "Never again." You like junior high kids, anyway, um, <laughs> which is true. Um, we would get often one thing we will do though is we visit a place called Muir Woods. Anybody familiar with Muir Woods? And it's this incredible park of redwood trees in San Francisco, California. And they're just these it's just amazing. You walk through it and you just are awed by these huge, huge trees. Some of them a hundred yards high. I mean, we're talking football field size high, twenty feet in diameter. And you see just look at those things. They're just massive. They've taken some of them from one of the oldest trees that they've found is 2,000 years old. At the birth of Christ, it was a little seedling. That's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing when you go through this woods and you, you look at it and you walk through it, you're just awed by the many years that have taken to deepen the roots, to grow the branches, to cause these things to flourish as there are these giant kings in the sky. And yet, what I also find interesting is one poor decision with one little match can take it all down in a small fraction of the time it took to mature. Isn't that amazing? One careless action, deed, thoughtlessly done, and the thing can be up in smoke. Some of you have in your own life with another person Experiencing, You've experienced the smoldering ashes of trust that's been torched. You maybe have experienced it in a business setting. You maybe have experienced it with someone from a friend who goes way back. Someone you've been a part of on a team. You maybe have experienced it in a ministry situation. And some of you have felt a deep, deep wound where you have felt the trust that had been built up in flames in a marriage relationship one of the most intimate places where you give yourself in trust quickly trust can be broken slowly trust is repaired and the question I want us to think about is how do you repair it when you've wronged someone you've hurt someone, what do you do when you've been hurt by someone what do you do How do you repair trust? As I was preparing these messages, and people don't realize, but I actually start quite a bit in advance. So back in actually March and sometime even before that, but March, April, I did a a lot of work on some of the stuff this summer and even this fall. And I'm always amazed that series or messages come up at times when they do in the life of the church. Which always makes me happy that this is something maybe God's involved in. But, you know, this whole idea of trust, I didn't, I didn't feel like we could leave this whole topic in series unless we talked about its repair. And there's two sides of the coin to trust. One involves trust when you've broken it, and the other side involves trust when you've been broken by it. And both sides of the coin are important. And so what I thought I would do this morning in in the time we have, is just to talk about these two sides of the coin. The first one, repairing trust when you've been hurt. And when I go through this, you can also learn a lot of lessons about what you do when you've hurt someone, okay? And I'm going to try and walk through a few of these points pretty quickly. I just have a whole lot more to say in them, but I, I realize for what I want to get to, what I think is necessary, I'm going to kind of move through these. So repairing trust when you've been hurt. You're in that place where you see the ashes of some of that trust, and some of you may be in the process of building, and you're really wondering, am I doing it the way that it should? And you've been in a situation where you're hurt. And so the first thing I just want to say right from the get-go is not everyone is trustworthy. It sounds really kind of simple, doesn't it? But the Bible is pretty clear on this. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, and you can find, I could, I could give you all kinds of verse references and chapters and places to look at this, but it says in chapter 2, verse 2, and the things you've heard me say, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people. It just basically makes the statement, some aren't. Choosing who you can trust is the best defense against being hurt. I think that's an important thing to understand. When the Bible gives instructions in Proverbs, it gives these wise things so that when you choose leaders, when you choose a business partner, when you choose um, a marriage partner, when you choose a friend, are you looking for the characteristics we talked about last week, the ABCDs of trust? Are you looking for what I said a few weeks before, that the essential, the essence of trust? Those are things, if you are thinking about relationships, it's important to know. It doesn't mean that you don't enter into some of those relationships, but you enter into them differently. You entrust and become vulnerable with parts of yourself differently. But you can choose the most trustworthy person in the world. And unless their last name is Christ and their first name is Jesus, which my last name of Jesus isn't Christ. That was kind of a joke. Um, it means the one who's so full and anointed and poured on with the Holy Spirit that it just oozes out of them whenever you touch them. Okay, that's Jesus Christ is the one who in every way, there's only one side of his coin, if you can think of it that way. And it's trustworthy all the time. But we're not. So welcome to the world, humanity. But part of what we've been talking about in this series is this. Trust, it can be built. And some are more trustworthy than others. Sometimes differences of vision and purpose need to be acknowledged. Sometimes we skip over things in Scripture. And I just say this because sometimes in life it's difficult when people are hurt and who trusts who and and how do you go about that. And some people trust people differently. And one of the most important, you know, I almost glossed over Scriptures, I think, in the Bible. And the reason I love the Bible is because the Bible shows itself with its warts and blemishes. You look at the Bible and you go, man, you use some really, you know, you use people like me. Messed up. Sometimes differences of vision and purpose need to be acknowledged. In in Acts 15, 36-41, Paul and Barnabas have this incredible first missionary journey, and and yet there's one painful event for Paul, really painful. And it wasn't that he was being chased out of town or being stoned or something physical like that. What happened was the trust was broken. A guy named John, who's also called Mark, one of the team members that Paul was counting on, deserted them when he needed him most. So you get in on the conversation that Luke lets us in on. Luke traveled with Paul, so Acts is written by by Luke, and he says in verse 36 of chapter 15 of Acts, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Luke is writing, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, the guy who deserted them. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And they, Paul and Barnabas, had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now, that's just an interesting. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas left, and they were commended by the believers, both of them, for the grace of the Lord, and he went to Syria. What I find is interesting is I think in that situation they had robust dialogue. They were very open about it. They talked about it. They, in a the sense, came together. They recognized their differences, and because of those differences and what they were both called to do, they chose to go in different ways. When you read the Bible, it's very interesting. You don't get from Luke this idea, one was a bad person the, the other person was a good person you don't get who's right who's wrong here You basically get the fact they had different purposes, directions. Barnabas was the kind of guy who who was very invested in the person. In fact, that's what he did with Paul. He brought him to the church of Antioch and he developed him. So he's a developer. He's into trying to help John Mark and Paul is into something else. He's into people. Neither of them are wrong, but Paul's into people. He's in the sense that he wants to go from community to community, develop people, churches where they can hear the gospel. And knowing that he's going to do this, it requires incredibly trustworthy people. There are going to be times in, in, in your life where there might be some place where you've been trust is broken and people will come around that differently. It's because sometimes things are going in different directions. That's okay. God's okay with that. What he doesn't want is people going, well, they're bad and they're good. And in some situations like this, they had to go their own way. They actually had some distance and separation. So that brings me to the next point. Sometimes... When, when there's hurt and you've been hurt deeply, and I'm talking about sometimes even with deep betrayal, sometimes boundaries of distance and time are necessary. This is a huge learning for me, coming from my own family system. Ma, we were people of words and emotion, and if you had these words and emotions, you felt a certain way. Then as soon as a person you know, said, I, I'm really sorry, then everything was okay. And, and, and so at a certain time in my life, I began to realize not everything is okay. I realized in a certain particular situation that God was teaching me, and I was reading through at this time in my life because it was so instructive. I was reading through 1st and 2nd Samuel, and I actually, for almost two and a half years, wrote a devotional on 1st and 2nd Samuel through this process. I was sending them out to people, and people would say to me, When are you going to get done with 1st and 2nd Samuel? I said, When the Lord is done with me in this. Well, one of the things I found in here is that David was, was really insightful for me, although David himself didn't even get it. Jonathan was the one who had the insight. So here you see Saul's king. David is on the rise. David this is just a boy, kills Goliath. He's getting all kinds of glory. Saul even realizes how important he is to developing the military um, actions of the kingdom. So he makes him a, a high military ranking officer at a very young age, sends him out to, to get rid of the Philistines who, were, who are bothering and pestering them. And he, David, goes out and has all these victories. And it's so incredible what David is doing that it says that soon the women welcome David and his men with ticker tape parades when they come back from the military victory and they're singing and dancing in the streets to this new number one song that's playing on all their radios and the chorus goes like this Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands now you have to understand something about Saul he's incredibly insecure he's approval addicted and it tells us in the word of God that he was jealous. So in 1 Samuel 18, 10 through 11, we read, Saul begins to um, prophesy in his house while David was playing the lyre. Let's just say the guitar for our day. And as he usually did. So here's Saul, he's sitting there, David singing songs to him. And Saul has a spear in his hand and he hurls it at David saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But scripture tells us David eluded him twice. Now, you gotta be thinking the first time the spears come on, you're thinking, should I be here a second time? But then it comes a second time. And David still doesn't really move. We don't know what happens, but we understand that Saul's son, Jonathan, who is David's best buddy, comes to David at a certain point and says, David, you gotta put some distance and you gotta put a little bit of time between you and my dad because you know what? One of those spears are gonna hit. And I have to think, as I process through this, I think David was so intent on Samuel's word that he would be the next king. He didn't know any other path of getting there except this way. And so he was just going to trust the Lord in it. And and Jonathan comes to him, I think there could be another way. Which David really needed. Because David then ran and he went into the wilderness. So fast forward the scene. David's running from Saul. Saul. He's put proper boundaries. He's he's put some space between them so that something can change in Saul so he can begin to to understand this. And David's on the run. Saul's chasing him. Saul wants to kill David. David has an opportunity at one point to kill Saul. Saul comes into a cave. David sees where he goes. He comes in and sneaks in. Saul's deep in the cave relieving himself, leaves his robe here. David takes the robe, cuts the corner of it off, goes back and runs. And then is conscious stricken that he would even touch the robe of God's anointed. As crummy as his king is, Saul is in this place called by God and David knows it. He knows he's not even supposed to touch the robe. So here he's standing on the other side when Saul gets over there. Here's David across from one hill to another and he shouts out to Saul and he says, Saul, I am so sorry. I cut off your robe, but I want you to know I could have killed you. But I'm not here to do that. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to serve you as a loyal subject. And David and Saul apologizes and says he's sorry, and they go their own way, the story continues, and David is still being chased by Saul. And so, at one point, David with some guys sneaks into Saul's camp, and they're standing there ready to, to you know, to, to 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 kill Saul is what these guys are thinking. They're thinking David plunges sword the spear into his heart, and David goes, no, "I'm not going to touch the anointed." You guys get it. And so what he does is he steals his water jug, Saul's water jug and his spear, or maybe you can look at it as a military thing, canteen and rifle. Takes them. And he and he, he goes away. Again, the morning comes. He gets on the other side and he holds him up and he goes, "Saul, you missing anything?" He goes, "Yeah, I've been looking for this all morning." This is David. Oh, David, And then he realizes David was there, stole it and could have killed him and he didn't again. And here's what you read in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel verse 21 through verse 25. Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you consider my life precious today, I will not catch, and and underline this because we'll talk about it in a moment, I will not try to harm you again. Underline the word try. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong." And then David says, here's the king's spear, David answers. And he doesn't go over to give it to him. He says, let one of your young men come over and get it. Says a few other things. Saul says, may you be blessed. And then we read, David went on his way and Saul returned home. What I find is really interesting here is David is learning that there are certain times you just can't trust. He forgives, and we'll talk about forgiveness in a moment, because forgiveness is always something we do no matter what the other person has done. Forgiveness is given, trust is earned. So in this case, he's looking at him and he goes, you know what, I need some distance, I need some space, it's okay to put a boundary. I don't know what that might look like in your situation, but when you've been hurt and a person does it repeatedly, they don't have insight, they don't have understanding, it is okay to put something there because the second thing you're going to be looking for is what I call... And most often what you'll want to see is some observable change in that life. Observable change is necessary. Sometimes boundaries of distance and space need to be put in place. But what is always being looked for is observable change. Jesus said it this way in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. You guys listen. In Matthew seven fifteen. he says, Watch out for the false prophets. They come with all kinds of good words. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look the part, but inwardly they're like ferocious wolves. They're like Saul saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But there's been no change. By their fruits, says Jesus, you will know them. Not their words, but their actions. Don't just be taken in by their words. Don't just be taken in by some tears. David heard Saul's apology, but he still kept a healthy boundary. We're told David went on his way, and Saul returned home. There's a time in my ministry in a situation I was in where my wife was teaching me this because I grew up with my brother a few years older. Someone in the service afterwards was saying that sounds like my situation with my family. But anyway, um, he's a couple of years older, and we would have fights, and he would, you know, he was like he's like six three, um, so he was a little bigger. Anyway. Um, he was bigger all through our grown-up years. And there was times when I would feel so hurt, so pained, so humiliated that he would say after he recognized that he really hurt me, he'd just tell me, I'm really sorry. And he'd have tears, et cetera. And he would want everything to be okay. And in my spirit, I didn't quite get it as a little kid. It just wasn't okay. I mean, I heard the apology, the forgiveness, but there was still stuff to do. And that's the reality, that sometimes when trust is broken in such a way, forgiveness is given. You accept the forgiveness, but you do need some space and some distance for there to show some observable behavior so that you can begin to build a trusting relationship because trust is built one of the greatest stories most cleverly written thoroughly enjoyable stories you'll read is in the bible and it's a story of joseph in egypt His brothers, he has this dream, his brothers sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery, starts working his way up in Potiphar's house, gets accused of of wrongdoing, gets thrown into prison, gets into prison there. After a long period of time, gets elevated and promoted to be second in command in Egypt. At this point, there's a famine that's occurring throughout the whole land, not just in Egypt, but also in Judah, in Jerusalem, Israel, and all through that area. And it's interesting as you get to chapter 42, Jacob the father says to his ten sons, and I think it's, just, it's almost humorous, he says, quit looking at each other. Is this famine's going on, they're going to die. He says, go and get food in Egypt or we'll die here in this famine. So they arrive, they ask for food, Joseph is there, recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He takes their order, but he does so quite harshly. And you kind of wonder why in the world is he so harsh? Is he mad? Is he getting back to them? No, he's already forgiven them. He's forgiven them. But there's something going on here. What I love about this story is you can read it from so many different perspectives. And here's the perspective I want you to understand. That's happening in this story. He accuses them of being spies. has a real purpose in mind here. And I love their answer to Joseph's accusation that they're spies. Genesis 42, verse 10 says, No, my lord, they answer. Your servants have come to buy food. We're really here just to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're not a bunch of different people. We're sons. That look at us. We kind of look somewhat alike, although they have different mothers. Your servants, catch this, are honest men, not spies. I think David's going, hmm, I wonder how honest they really are. I know those guys. Just how trustworthy are they? So David says, no, no, not, you're not here for that reason. You're here to see whether the land's unprotected, where it isn't. You're just a bunch of spies. And they protest their innocence and their trustworthiness. And by, they say, we're ten sons of one father again. where the youngest one is back home with dad. And then they say in, 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 the, in the Bible, it says, and one is no more. So they even fess up on this with Joseph there. Then if you read chapter forty two, verses fourteen through sixteen, looks in what it says. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. Interesting word. We're gonna see how honest you guys are. I'm gonna see if there's been any change in your life over the years. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. That's the test. Send one of, your, one of your number to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. Joseph goes, I don't want words, guys. I want fruit. I want observable behavior. I want to see the change, not just hear about it. So Joseph fills them all in prison for three days to get them even more afraid. Chapter 42, verse 18 says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. They still don't know who he is. And then he says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving household. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this goes on for two more chapters, three or four pages. Joseph has Simeon thrown into prison. You wonder why Simeon. It may be because Simeon was the second oldest brother. He was really in many ways considered, if you read through the story, the most untrusted, the, the greatest rascal, the one who, was the one who um, would do the worst things, so to speak. And so I think he puts him in prison because there's a test in that as well. They leave and they go, you know what, he deserved it. We're not coming back for that. That's God's punishment. It was his idea to get rid of Joseph. Well, they go back, and, and you get this story. Judah pleads. You start seeing Judah is going to be the leader of his brothers, and the Bible purposely does that to show us that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. So you see all this stuff going on. Oh, there's so much. It's so fun. Anyway, um, so Judah is pleading with his dad, please, and, he, and his dad's going, no, we already lost Joseph. I don't want to do that. And he says, please, let us take Benjamin back. He goes ahead, and he takes Benjamin back with them. And so they term, return with Benjamin. And you get this picture throughout it that the internal prison of guilt that these 10 brothers have had for the years that they've been um, under the, the deed that they did to Joseph is like stronger than the prisons that have kept G, um, Joseph in Egypt. Does that make sense? This internal prison of your guilt is nothing compared to any external prison you may feel. And you may be there right now and God wants to set you free. That's part of what goes on. Anyway, so that's not what we're going to get to. It takes all this convincing. He goes back to get back to Egypt. Joseph arranges for dinner. They go, oh, wow, he's going to have dinner at his house. We know what he wants to do. He wants to accuse us. He wants to, he wants to take our stuff. He wants to kill us, and he wants to take our donkeys. And I'm thinking, their donkeys can't be that great. But maybe they are. Anyway, that's what they're thinking. He sets them in order of their ages, from oldest to youngest. He gives Benjamin, who's sitting at the end... Five times as much food as he gives to the rest of the brothers. And you're going, why is he doing that? Is it just because he likes Benjamin? No, he's testing him. He's going to see once again, have they gotten over their incredible jealousy and the envy that's in their heart? So he gives them all this food. And, and they leave and they, they, they go back and, and they um, are, are bringing Benjamin back and Joseph plants his silver special um, um, cup in in benjamin's bag purposely and so as they're on the way back joseph sends a guy to go and he says you know what you guys you guys are a bunch of thieves we know you're spies someone took someone when you're eating dinner there you took one of joseph's most favorite cups oh no we didn't do that you can check any of our bags if you check our bags you can you know if, if if you find that one in any of our bags that person will be your slave for life so they find it in whose bag? Benjamin's bag. If they didn't care and they still had all that junk in their heart, let Benjamin stay there. Who cares about Benjamin? He's as bad as Joseph. They bring it back and Judah falls before Joseph and cries out to Joseph and he says to him, imprison us all but let Benjamin go free it will kill our dad if Benjamin doesn't return home his brother is dead referring to Joseph and he is the only one of his mother's sons left and his father underlined this loves him he puts up with us but he loves him and then Judah finally says what every betrayed person wants to hear please let me remain I will remain in Benjamin's place let the boy return with his brothers. I can't return with the boy. Oh, I can't return without him. No, he says, and here's what, he's, here's what he's waiting, Joseph is waiting here. Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. When the other person's pain from my own hurtful actions is greater than any pain that can come to me, something's changed. When, when you can say hurting you hurts me too much, your behavior begins to change and it's at that point that Joseph reveals himself he's seen observable change you may be in that situation where you need to understand forgiveness is always a non-negotiable you may need some boundaries you need to always I think be looking for observable change And you need to forgive. It is a non-negotiable. No matter how deeply you've been hurt, forgiveness is to be given. It is an act of obedience. Jesus, when he prayed, meant it. Forgive my trespasses, our trespasses, God, as we forgive a few people, everyone who has stamped over our hearts. I had a guy afterwards say to me, this is one of the hardest things I had to learn this in my own life. He said, all three of my daughters abused by a neighbor. But I had to forgive. We had to forgive. You see, forgiveness doesn't mean, forgiveness is not about trusting the person. It is about entrusting the person who's hurt you to God. It's setting yourself free from their event so you can now begin to walk in freedom with God and believing that God will take care of that person. And here's what you need to hear. Forgiveness is something that is an act of obedience as a believer. It is given. Trust is earned. You can build it. And you need to make certain in your relationships where you are vulnerably giving away safe things that people are worthy of that trust. Now it's noon, and there's a whole part on repairing trust when you've done the herding. So I don't know what to do. I whipped through that in the second service. And I will probably just do that real quickly here in five minutes. Is that okay? There's, three, there's five words, responsibility, patience, accountability, growth, and humility that I think are very important when trust, you've done the hurting. And I say this because now just listen to all the stuff i said here and begin to just put this into place. Responsibility is this. When we have wronged someone and we're aware of it, we've broken another's trust, it is our responsibility to make it right. That includes ownership, where you will acknowledge what you've done and then you will apologize for what you've done. Acknowledgement means this. When people come to me and they say, oh, I'm really sorry, and they're general about it, I will always ask them, so be specific, what were you really sorry for? Because if they don't have insight, and they can't acknowledge it, they're probably just going to keep doing it again and again. And when it comes to apology, the hardest thing for me to learn when I'd apologize is I had to do it without explanations, without giving excuses or reasons I just had to look them in the eye and say, I was wrong. I hurt you. This is just, I need you to forgive me. I would love for you to forgive me. Second, patience. You need to give space and time and remain patient for healing and trust to be rebuilt. Trying to build trust too quickly is likely to do more damage. It's going to make things worse rather than better. Do you catch that? Because often, that my brother or Saul, it's all about, I just want things to feel good again. I just want it to be close. I'm missing the connection, and you're going, you know what, I'm not ready. And if you really want to love that person, because you're concerned about the pain you cause in their life, give them time. Show them in patience that you understand it and get it. And third, accountability, where trust is broken, strengthen the weakness. i got to share with you, if, if it's in a situation where you've broken trust with a spouse, maybe it's something like, um, uh, who knows, let's just say it's pornography or something like that, then if you are really serious about it, if you really want them to trust you, then you've got to put a plan into place. You take accountability. You put a plan into place. They begin to see that you're taking responsibility, not just acknowledging it and apologizing for it and giving them time, but you're doing something to repair where it's been broken. And I'm not talking about the break. I'm talking about the cause of the break, which is in your heart. If I could go on, I'm, and I'll just stop there. And, 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 and that's where I want to do this with David and Saul. That's where David goes, I will not, you know, Saul says, I will not try to harm you. Baloney. How safe should David feel with the words, I will not try? What I would want to hear if I was David is, I have gotten rid of all my spears and anything that could damage you. I'm on new medicine. And I've got some guards around here. The moment I get up to try and do anything towards you, they're going to stop me. Right? Right? You know, when they they come to you with, oh, I'm just going to try, go, yeah, show me it in in the plan that's going to make it happen. Growth. You've heard about observable change. You need to change. That's up to you. And fifth is humility. You need to recognize your limitations and humbly accept what you can and can't do. There's only so much you can do. You're not God. You can in no way force someone else to trust you. Okay, You can make all the changes inside, everything else, and observable changes, but you can't make them trust you. Then you got to give it to God. And in the same token, this way, you are in a situation where you've been hurt before. You can't make anyone trustworthy. Humility means that God is the one who has the unlimited power and grace. And when it comes to someone who I can trust in, it's God. And God is all of our rock. Right? So trust, you learn from him. And as you do that, you begin to understand that through him and his power, if you're willing to accept it, he can build it in you, in us, if we're willing to do it.